What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Magazine Podcast. I am sitting here with my man, Dylan LeClaire, BTCization. Uh, we had a great conversation with David Puel, one of the like OG on-chain analysts and, in my opinion, one of the best analysts in the space. Uh, Dylan, this was your first time getting to meet him, uh, and you, you, know, you had some great questions. You know, what was your thoughts on the conversation? Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, you know, a guy with a lot of market experience, um, traded through traded through a cycle or two, um, has a really deep understanding of, of derivatives and and you know just just the inner workings of of these markets. So it was it was awesome to you know sit here and, and pick his brain a little bit. Yeah, dude. Well, again, you were asking some really complex questions, and for the listeners out there who are faint of heart, guys, this podcast we go deep. We go deep on finance. We go deep on markets. Um, we talk about all these insane market forces that are kind of circling around Bitcoin. So uh, you might have to listen to this one once or twice. You might have to look up some uh, some lingo and words that are being thrown around. But awesome. Honestly, this is a really, really awesome conversation. And there is a lot of alpha in here. So if you can, uh, if you can pick it apart, um, there's definitely some sats to be stacked. Um, but until then, let's talk about this podcast. Let's talk about this podcast sponsor, which is Bitcoin 2021. Uh, this is the biggest conference in Bitcoin history. It's the biggest event in Miami, in Florida, since the Super Bowl. So, I mean, this is a really big deal. The mayor of Miami is going to be greeting the Bitcoiners into the city day one of the conference. And we have Michael Saylor. We have Jeff Booth. We have Preston Pish. We have Cynthia Lummis. I mean, these are just you know, one of just a few names of our incredible speaker lineup, go over to the site, b.tc forward slash conference, go check out all the speakers, go get yourself a ticket. If you haven't gotten one already, like I feel bad for you. I'm sorry. They're pretty freaking expensive at this point, but you are waiting to the last minute. This is your own fault. It's all about personal responsibility. And you could have got this ticket at one point for $200. Now it's $900 if you pay with BTC and north of $1,300 if you pay with fiat. And honestly, don't pay with fiat. Don't do it because we have a partnership with MoonPay. And at MoonPay, you can use your debit card, Apple Pay, Google Pay, your credit card, whatever, to buy Bitcoin and pay us directly from our ticket page in Bitcoin. So you don't ever have to pay in fiat or you can pay in fiat and uh, and we can get paid in Bitcoin and no one has to know the difference, you get the discount. So check out MoonPay. They are one of the coolest apps and builders in the space. They build out payment infrastructure. They are in 160 countries and over 300 wallets. So what does that mean to have MoonPay in your wallet? So instead of going to Coinbase, and buying Bitcoin and Coinbase and then having to withdraw, you buy it using Apple Pay through your non-custodial wallet on your phone. Apple uh, MoonPay, you know, charges your debit card and then sends you Bitcoin, sends you sats to your non-custodial wallet off the bat. It just completely bypasses the custodial aspect of buying Bitcoin with fiat. Uh, it's pretty freaking cool. And they are building this infrastructure into tons of different wallets and tons of different services, just like our website over at b.tc forward slash conference. So go to b.tc forward slash conference, go click on tickets, go check out MoonPay, learn more about them, figure out how you can leverage MoonPay to get your Bitcoin in a non-custodial fashion and meet their team as well as our team at the conference. Holy shit, that was a long freaking ad read. Uh, thanks for sitting through that one, Dylan. Uh, and let's get into this podcast with David Puel.
Bitcoiners. I am here with another episode of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, and I'm joined by my co-host Dylan LeClaire from uh, our Bitcoin Magazine uh, content team. And we are sitting across from world famous Bitcoin on-chain analyst uh, and pioneer really in the on-chain space, uh, David Puel. Welcome to the first time on the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, but welcome back to Bitcoin Magazine. Oh, pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. So, David, I guess since it is your first time on this podcast, why don't we start with a kind of brief introduction on, you know, you as a trader and you uh, kind of pioneering in the on-chain analytics space? Well, I guess uh, the my main influence into, you know, tackling on-chain economics, the Bitcoin was Willy Woo. I guess like most people here have that influence, people in the space. So I became, uh, I began tackling Bitcoin in like full time in 2017, mostly as a trader, um, mostly on a, you know, shorter term basis, despite, you know, being a, um, a long term believer and all that stuff. Um, but starting, you know, dabbling into on chain in 2018. Uh, and um, what happened was we saw the publication or the announcement, you could say, of uh, Realize Cap in the Riga conference in 2018. I think it was September, October. And um, we, uh, Murad Mahmoudov and I devised the, like the first, one of the classic on-chain metrics uh, today, which is the MPRV ratio. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a simple ratio dividing market capitalization by realized capitalization. Uh, it picked up and uh, we met Willie and I continued to just collaborate a lot with him. And that's when, you know, a bunch of new on-chain metrics uh, came about either with him or independently. Um, and, you know, that's pretty much has been my focus for the most part that and just, you know, trading the asset um, and he, here we are. That's that's the, the gist of it, I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot more to it than that. But uh, for all the listeners who want to learn more, David's done a ton of amazing podcasts um, and panels out there. So just look him up online and uh, you can learn a lot more about his deep kind of trading and, uh, and on-chain uh, history. But let's jump into these questions, right? So uh, I think that the market right now is truly in a state of confusion, at least for many Bitcoiners. They're kind of looking around and 2021 um, has been a lot of frenzy in the altcoin space. Yes, Bitcoin has done quite a bit, but um, it has been outperformed and uh, people are kind of looking around like, what the hell is going on? So, you know, I guess, you know, want to just put you right on the spot, but, you know, What's your kind of assessment of, you know, what's happening in the current state of the Bitcoin market? Well, I think it's like the modus operandi of, of bull markets in crypto. You saw the same phenomena in 2017, mostly, where, you know, you have a lot of capital rotating from Bitcoin to alts once Bitcoin like has, you know, consolidated the uptrend for everyone to see. Um, I think it has, like today, uh, back then it has had to do a lot with, you know, the ICO boom, retail going to those uh, assets. 
etc. Right now, I think it has to do a lot of rotation, but a little bit different in the sense that yes, retail uh, or the some OGs and, and retail people that stay for the bear market are now you know transitioning into altcoins to to capture more alpha and upside, especially because they didn't like uh, pump that much in 2020, right? Um, and you also see uh, institution institutional interest in other crypto assets, right? Uh, you have the to give you a, a very uh, obvious example, like, you know, you have the role pulse of the world, you know, first dabbling and obsessing over Bitcoin, and then just going into Ethereum or whatever altcoin. Uh, the DeFi space is also like very, very not just Bitcoin, but DeFi in general is being you know severely hyped. Whether it's overhyped or not, at, at the very least hyped, you could say that's a fact. Um, the NFT, so it, it's propping up a lot of different asset classes within the crypto space um, into the mainstream, right? It's not not only leaking into main street as you know investors, but main, mainstream as you know part of the culture right now. Um, so you're starting to see, you know, the, the Bitcoin flex, the, N the NFT flex, um, everyone in, uh, from, you know, chess players to artists, uh, you know, tokenizing everything, uh, maximizing, maximizing gains via that mechanism. I think it's just like a regular part of any crypto bull market. Um, up to the point where, you know, the industry becomes diverse enough and, you know, tested enough, test uh, stress tested enough so that you can you, you assess each um, asset individually. I do think at this point that Ethereum has a lot of Lindy effect. Uh, it has to survive a lot by now, uh, whether it's centralized or decentralized and, you know, the assets built on top of it um, are, you know, safe or riskless investments, that's another um, matter. But, you know, as of now, most people feel comfortable investing in it, uh, especially as, as, you know, potential outperformer of Bitcoin in bull markets, right? A uh, completely different question in bear markets because, you know, crypto is very reflective, uh, price reflective. So, um, you know, the downside in, with altcoins is much um, more painful. Um, but, you know, even from a measurable, like a technical stand, standpoint, you saw that the, the same decoupling in terms of correlation between, let's say, Bitcoin and Ethereum exactly in Q2 and Q4 2017, right? So now we're in Q2. Um, we're seeing, we're noticing that same correlation where, bit, like, sometimes, especially on the intradaily timeframes, you see Bitcoin at oversold while Ethereum is overbought, right? Stuff like that. Like you, you, you notice that sort of decoupling. It's good for diversification, especially if you're like a crypto only hedge fund or crypto only trader or holder, right? Um, but, you know, goes with the risk that you better catch the top not to get, you know, wrecked completely in the bear market. Um, so, so let's see what happens. So far, is is normal, and and that same 
rotational spirit that we had in 2017, I think it's just capturing institutional behavior as well in the cycle. It's just like different scales and different, um, you know, investing personalities, you could say, but for the, for the most part, it's the same thing. Like how closely would you say 2021, based on what you're looking at, resembles uh, 2017? Like obviously the narratives are different, but like in terms of like what you're looking at. Well, yeah, from, from a, let's say, evaluation perspective, yeah, so far, you know, it's atypical like every bull market, not, you know, history rhymes, but does not exactly repeat itself. Um, so, you know, you're right, right now you have the two main possibilities that we're, for, you know, we're building a major top and then, a, you know, a huge correction is going to happen. This is like the double bubble scenario where you have, um, you know, the, the huge correction in April 2013, right, to give you an example. And then that correction build up the second part of the, of the bull market into the top in November. We can see that uh, for sure. Um, that would be my most bearish scenario as of now. Or uh, you could just see it continue to, to, to pump, especially after the last few months where we've been like consolidating for, for a while now in the same range, right? Between let's say uh, 40 and 60 or so. So if we have a breakout, you know, that's correction enough in terms of time so that we can like actually um, pump to, you know, the, the mean prices of 100 to 150K, whatever, right? Uh, which uh, with a much healthier history, you could say, right? Because just pumping and pumping without any correction on price or time, it's unhealthy. So it's good at the very least that we see in a consolidation. And it's taken a while, That's, it's very healthy. David, I have a question for you. So um, when, when looking at previous cycles um, and, and you have, you know, many different like valuations and, and metrics to look at, what do you think the effect of, of the, you know, kind of a developed, I guess, physically settled uh, derivatives and futures market has on, on this cycle and the, about like, you know, the, the valuations that come with it. CME came at like the 2017 top with a, with a futures market, but it was cash settled. Now, you know, there's mostly offshore. There's not many, uh, there's no exchanges in America, um, derivative or futures exchanges, but um, like, how do you think that has an effect on market structure? I think it has a deeper effect, but even, even if, if that's the case, I think it has mostly an effect on an intra-daily basis, you know, meaning the wicks, the famous wicks and, and shakeouts and liquidation events, um, than, you know, any narrative that, you know, derivative markets, are driving price in in some fashion. I, I, I generally don't adhere to that reasoning. Uh, even in 2018, which is the heyday of the derivatives market, especially compared to spot volumes and opening, and you know when you compare Bitmex, uh, Binance volumes with Coinbase and, and all the oracles that you know you know are the basis for for all these contracts. Um, you saw um, all the, the the major price movements in Bitcoin could be explained by very precise fundamental reasons that affected spot more than derivatives, right? 
So if you go back to the history, like if you go back to, let's say 2018, 2019, um, you had the collapse of the ICO boom, right? Uh, coming off severe irrational exuberance uh, in late 2017 and early 2018, huge consolidation, the hash wars producing a huge capitulation event to 3K, um, then that marked the absolute general generational bottom. Then you had the plus token era, right? Um, where you had a lot of supply restriction, uh, you know, 1% of the supply was being captured into a Ponzi scheme. As restricted supply, prices drove up completely, despite the fact that there wasn't that much new money on it. You had like artificial buying via the Ponzi scheme. Uh, and then when the Ponzi scheme, you know, got busted by the CCP, and the CCP started uh, unloading those, those assets uh, in, in the middle of 2019, you had another uh, major correction, right? Uh, I mean, 200, over 200,000 Bitcoins. Of course, it's gonna have like a longer term or at least, a, you know, intra-yearly impact on price. Then that distribution wore off when we were back at 6K. Um, we were out of the water a little bit and then the, you know, the major black swan of COVID came and collapsed the market back to 5K. Um, so you can pretty much track the history. Everything is spot driven. Everything is, you can, you can explain it first principles from very fundamental reasons on why um, price fluctuated that way. Uh, and, you know, derivative markets were only affecting price on a, on a weak intradaily basis, not on a fundamental valuation basis. Um, as soon as we had new money coming in, you know, the Paul Tudor Jones and et cetera, after the COVID collapse, you know, uh, volumes on spot were much better relative to derivatives. And you can actually see uh, a bull market driven by just people buying, people buying. Um, and, you know, you see the results now. <laughs> it's pretty much a year without a major correction over, you know, 30% or so. Yeah, I feel like the market is very healthy right now and as frustrating as it is for uh, Bitcoiners to not see number go up constantly, $1,000 a day and stuff like that. Um, it is uh, it is healthy to have this kind of consolidation. And I just wanted to comment that every time I've spoken to you, David, it always blows my mind how you can just recall historical events in the Bitcoin price and the Bitcoin chart all at the same time, just off the top of your head. I feel like you may have memorized the entire like Bitcoin chart history. So uh, I think that's just a testament at how much you look at the chart. <laughs> yeah, that's basically it's nothing. I'm not a like a scholar on it. I just look at it all day. Then just some some things uh, stick to you. <laughs> that that's the secret. Just stare at the charts all day. <laughs> so I have another question. Um, kind of kind of bouncing off that that second one. Um, so uh, with a with a developed derivatives market coming in um, and open interest on on options and and uh, futures, I mean it's still pretty insignificant around 30 35 billion, um, and a lot of I guess institutions coming in to to arb this this spread with the the cash and carry trade. Um, do you do you see that as maybe a, a driver of spot volume or at least you know institutions coming in to to, to execute this trade actually you know have to buy the underlying spot spot uh spot bitcoin 
So I, is this maybe a driver of, of capital as, you know, credit markets uh, in, in the legacy financial, financial world are offering really no yield? Well, I, I do think it's like, um, it makes the whole ecosystem more robust, especially for smart traders, you could say, or smart active managers, in the sense that um, you now have more platforms to onboard your hedges or your arbitrage or whatever, you know, trading mechanism you're using to, you know, the risk your trade, especially because Bitcoin is, is seen as a very risky asset. Where at the very least, you can like, you know, claim the fact that it's volatile, right? So with that trade-off of the asset, um, the more uh, uh, the more platforms uh, and instruments that you have to, you know, the risk your your active management, it's as a secondary, you could say externality, you could see like more smart traders going into the asset from a spot perspective um, because they have the other instruments to risk their trade, right? Yeah, so market neutral. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And especially if those platforms are not offshore, are regulated, are robust, are highly accountable from a regulatory perspective and all that, right? Um, so I, I just think it's a plus. Now, uh, what we saw in 2017 was uh, very particular was because, you know, we already had caught up with reaction and exuberance. Uh, no smart institutional money was buying. All the crypto hedge funds had already, you know, bought what they bought, like either, you know, in 2016, early 2017, and then the laggards, uh, late 2018. But, you know, the, the, the whole market was in a, at a peak irrational exuberance, completely disproportional to adoption. And, you know, so yes, you had the, the launch of the CME and CBOE, derivative instruments, which, was the perfect opportunity to short, right? At that stage. So at those prices, given that weeks prior, you had, you know, 2X increases in price, it was just a better trade, the uncrowded trade, and it made much more sense to it. But now that you're actually seeing, you know, Bitcoin and crypto in general, uh, you know, um, branching out, not only into Main Street, but, you know, completely into the, into the culture, right? Uh, both in Asia and the West, in the West, um, it's more nuanced, you could say, right? So any new, you know, platform or any Lindsay Lohan tweet, yes, it's a sign of some exuberance, but you have to consider your position much more uh, in a much more nuanced way, because it's it's all about proportion, right? Yeah, and. I so personally, I completely agree and align with you. I feel like you see this coming. You understand why the clowniness has to happen. And we haven't even talked about like how what's happening in the traditional world is completely and utterly clowny with you know all the COVID stimulus uh, from an assets valuations perspective. So like we're not even talking about that when and how that actually affects crypto prices, but like. I feel like there's so many Bitcoiners out there who are looking around like, this is the top. Like, here's the craziness that we expect. 
right? And like, no, you need to expect a hundred times more than this. You need to expect just complete and total insanity compared to 2017. And I feel like you align with that. Yeah, yeah, it's much more, well, that that's the, what makes trading bubbles hard, right? Because I mean, maybe you know you're in a bubble, but it's a whole different story to get the top, right? <laughs> Exit at the top, um, you know, after losing potentially 2x, 3x uh, gains at the very end of it, right? Um, so right now, it's very obvious that you have much more fundamental reasons um, to, you know, not get scared by, you know, Magnus Carlsen doing NFTs on his chess games or, you know, how, whatever pop star shilling whatever shitcoin or, you know, whatever. Uh, it's much harder. That, that's the, the hard thing about bubbles, <laughs> detecting thoughts, because it's all proportional. So you never know what's enough until you know what's more than enough. That's a Billy, William Blake quote that I think applies to markets <laughs> very nicely. Yeah, I, that, that, there's a lot of wisdom there. So, I mean, I guess talking about Bitcoin seeping into the culture, like there's always this narrative these days around the super cycle. I feel like Bitcoin Tina and I really push this hard with our podcast, The Hardest Trade, where we talk about, you know, the potential for people to get wrecked because they're looking for a blow off top and then a massive uh, decline that never happens and they just end up having less Bitcoin. And we talk about different scenarios in which that can kind of happen and, uh, and you know, discuss what we think is the hardest trade in general. But uh, I guess would love to post that to you. Like, what do you think of the super cycle narrative and Bitcoin and crypto just becoming part of the narrative, become, becoming a bigger part of society in general and maybe like less speculative? Um, yeah, I think it's going to happen, but I think we're at least a decade away from that, you know, in the sense of well, what do you mean, like less speculative? I think speculation is going to be going and going for, for years to come. That's just the fact of the volatility of it. It's all relative to the volatility. So until we get to a point where volatility is quiet enough and that, that becomes, you know, we get to that point where it's actually a medium, more a medium of exchange than a store of value in, in terms of narrative and actual usage. Um, then we, we, we have that, okay, it's more like to actually pay for stuff, right? Save my money instead of just, you know, becoming a, a big trade uh, for, for, you know, whatever holder. Um, so for that, I, I do think we're a few years away. The super cycle, well, a few things would have to happen for that, you know, um, hypothesis to play out, um, which keeps me a little bit skeptical or a little bit wary in terms of that. Um, and it all depends on how price rises, right? If it goes up in a very unhealthy way, you're for sure going to have the, the, the typical feedback loop, feedback loop of irrational exuberance, right? You know, weaker hands coming in, wanting uh, cheap money, uh, more incentives to profit take, both from the retail tagline and the OGs as well, that you know are perhaps in this from 2014 or whatever, or before, and institutions as well, right? Like institutions, especially institutions, are 
they evaluate each asset under a narrative, sure, but they change opinions. That's one. And even if, if that they have like a long-term opinion on uh, on a certain asset, they may not hold it on an inter-yearly inter basis, right? So if they actually look at the macro stuff and say, okay, things are not as inflationary, right? As uh, and so they don't have any, you know, much more incentives to drive capital, you know, dirty USD into asset prices, right? Including Bitcoin, they may decide to use profit take. You also see the incentives of a lot of institutions, including you know Guggenheim and, and few others, that you know they see a two x return, you know, after buying a twenty k, they sell they they sell at forty at least partially stuff like that, right? Because you know they don't want to like shit the bed uh, so severely. Um, I do see a lot of factors that incentivize selling, especially if price. Um, just pumps like crazy. Um, the only way I do, I, I, I may go into a super cycle theory from a technical perspective, you know, just looking at the charts because, you know, a lot of fundamental driven events, you cannot calculate them. You can see trends, but, you know, major swans in the market, you cannot like predict them uh, so far in advance. But perhaps if we go into price behavior where you have severe moments of consolidation, like we're having right now, let's say price pumps for six months and then consolidates for six months, that would be healthy enough to drive a super, uh, super high cycle, right? If it gets volatile, I, I do expect a major correction. That's just the nature of markets and humans and, and all that, you know whether it's an institution or, or you know, Katy Perry. <laughs> For you yourself, um, this cycle, you know, taking a look at the markets, if we see somewhat of a repeat of, of 2017, where there's kind of this super volatile blow off top, um, what sort of strategies would you think about employing, um, you know, to, I guess, time the top? I mean, obviously, um, there's option of selling spot, but would you look into um, hedging with by, by selling futures or, you know, selling covered calls or, or, you know, how are you thinking about that? Um, I, uh, I mean, yes, you have all those options. Personally, I, I'm not going to disclose my, my, you know, my, <laughs> uh, what to do at the top plan, uh, because, you know, for several reasons, um, but, you know, I, I guess it depends on the personality of the, of the holder in the sense that, you know, one, you know, there's some sophistication required to, to hold those assets, right? Even more so with options. So it, it may be just easier for someone to maybe not sell all, but, you know, take some profits, right? Like recover your initial profits strategies, simple strategies like that, or, you know, Every 10K, I sell 5% sort of stuff, right? Very simple stuff. Uh, that may be like sounder because you, you remain as a holder, but you, 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 you know, and, and that's a, a healthy aspect of a market that if you actually sell some and, and you see lower prices after, right? You have some dry power to deploy and, you know, build new bottoms, right? So that's healthy, right? Um, 
and it's healthy for Bitcoin. So, you know, not selling ever. Well, if you're an, a long-term believer, right, you should be the, 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 the actual person who has some cash to deploy at the bottom, right? You're, you're literally the, the guy looking for it. Um, I think a little bit of that is what, what happened in, in 20, 2018, 19. You know, you, you had absolutely no new money. And most of the money that remained were just long, just holders, like hardcore holders, right? You, you saw it on chain, right? Like Coinbase destroyed, dormancy, all that stuff completely collapsed, but prices, you know, still um, went down a little bit more, you know? You saw a very healthy lack of destruction and, and you know, just coins moving around when we were at 6K in middle of 2018, but then, you know, hash wars came along. There was no new money that was strong enough to hold that and we just dropped to 3K, right? So, a lot of that stuff, uh, I think that's one of the, the reasons Bitcoin goes into very, you know, binary market cycles, whether you, you, you know, you actually know you're in a bull or a bear cycle, right? Like after a few months of, of, of the bottom or the top, you actually know, oh, I think we're in a bull market. I think we're in, because, you know, it's, it's just the property of the asset. You have very long-term holders that perhaps never sell or sell when, when you have like a full-blown bull market. And, and then you have to wait for new money, you know, for, you know, whatever reason, right? Whether it's just retail exploding or, you know, COVID and stimulus coming in and incentivizing a lot of, you know, pulling cash into asset prices in general, you know, that being, you know, Bitcoin, the, the, the most, uh, momentum driven, you could say. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, ultimately, it's the fact that there is so much new money as a percentage of the population. And there's so much new uh, dependence on new money entering the space for valuations to go up uh, that I feel like this is why we kind of have the altcoin um, aspect of the market. Like, there needs to be a vessel for alpha on Bitcoin. There needs to be a way for people who have opposing worldviews to express themselves in the cryptocurrency market. Uh, there needs to be all of these kind of like aspects and the market is delivering, right? There is just demand for it and the market is delivering it. And I mean, again, as a Bitcoiner, I'm at Zen with that because I see that as making Bitcoin better. I think it, it really does make the Bitcoin market better. And, and I think all roads lead to 21 million personally. That's my thesis here. 21 million in what sense? Uh, in price? Like 21 million Bitcoin, as in like uh, all the all the value it will end up being denominated in 21 million Bitcoin. Oh, okay, good, got it, got it. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's just part of, um, and also like having, perhaps you don't agree that you know, crypto has a lot of optionality. Just having the sense of it and letting newcomers learn their, their lessons on what's valuable and what's not, I think it's very healthy uh, for any, you know, up and coming industry. Um, so I don't mind, you know, people buying whatever they want. I, I, I just don't care. I just, you know, take care of my own portfolio. <laughs> uh, people can take the risks they want. 
Yeah, I have a couple a couple questions. Um, so, what do you think about the the lag in, in hash rate um, since since the having um, prices up more than five hundred six hundred percent and hash rates really lag behind um, and and hash rate and the and the minor difficulty um, continuing to increase um, after the after the blow up top was one of the reasons for that major capitulation. Um, if there is still this significant lag um, and minor profit margins continue. Um, to increase, do you think that, you know, how, how do you think that plays out um, and has an effect on markets, if any at all? I, I, I've always dear that hash, hash rate follows price. And, and maybe, and sometimes not even that, like I do think that miners are, especially, you know, the bigger, bigger, smarter miners in the world have resources enough to, to be profitable on a monthly, let's say, basis, uh, irrespective of what's going on with, 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 with the price. Um, I think um, that you could call it a divergence between you know price increasing much more in proportion to hash rate in the bull market, just in the bull market. I think it's natural because you have completely the opposite in in the bear markets where you know hash rate keeps pumping. Um, difficulty keeps increasing irrespective of price. Um, I just think it, it has to do more with the floor of being profitable that the, the trend of price itself, right? So whenever you have a, um, a cost basis for miners, um, price fluctuations are not that important because if you break even, you just don't care. If it's possible, profitable, you really don't care. Uh, the other thing, yes, like miners are have less impact in the price of Bitcoin now as natural sellers, of course, and that's going to continue for you know as long as the monetary policy of Bitcoin, uh, you know, is is not changed. Um, in terms of, there's a few signals on chain like the hash rate ribbons and a few others, you know, that mark whenever, you know, miners are at a relative loss, you could say for days, perhaps to weeks. Uh, you saw that on the, um, on the China shortage, we just had a few weeks ago, you know, miners were uh, below that price floor. Um, that tends to be a good indication of, you know, general capitulation in the market, because that floor seems to be very, important in terms of fundamentals and also you know speculative gauge um but for the most part i, I always hear that hash rate follows price i i think it's a lagging indicator a very good one uh to that but as long as uh, you keep having um, a decent increase in, in hash rate relative to more to its past than to price uh, I think the the, net, the network is secure enough, um, and, and you know the the fundamentals of Bitcoin in that respect remain strong. So, um, apart from that, I do not think that it leads price in any way, shape, or form. Especially now that miners are less important in, in terms of price. Actually, got it. So, um, I mean, I think kind of. Going off of that, do you think that um, because of the d decreasing block subsidy, um, that the halving is 
is is not as significant as it, as it once was you know um like the stock to flow model um are you more in the camp of that this this bull market is is from the monetary stimulus and the macro backdrop rather than the having or i mean i think obviously it's a little bit of both but what are your thoughts there yeah i a uh, little bit of both but i do think it's more uh the macro stuff driving the whole thing i do think that it holds a very strong speculative meaning for investors. The fact that we're just having the supply by half, the, the emission of supply. Uh, but I'm not sure it's meaningful enough to get that, that much new money into the ecosystem, right? Let's say if we wouldn't have had the, the COVID panic, and you know the, all the inflationary hedge panic in early middle 2020. It's a it's a good question if if Bitcoin would have pumped so much, right? If pretty much Paul Tudor, Paul Tudor Jones would have gotten into the space and pretty much single-handedly legitimized the asset for for Wall Street, and let alone Wall Street, but also SF. And you know all the all the big techs in, in in the world, not just New York, but also San Francisco. So it's very hard to to gauge what would have happened. Uh, stock to flow. I mean, it's good as a meme, uh, and it has uh, good good rationale behind it in terms of you know you have a a very calculable and definite supply system but i've always held and i know bitcoin tina is gonna gonna text me right after he listens to this podcast i'm, I'm sure of it um i i do hold that it assumes a, a somewhat um linear or increasing demand for it to play out which may happen right but the assumption from first principles that you're making is okay Yes, the fact that the main value of Bitcoin is that it's scarce and it, that it's very difficult to change that monetary policy, right? Those are like literally the, the two main drivers of its demand, right? But you have a lot of, you know, little swans in, in, the, echo, in, in the world in general, in the, in the world economy that uh, may prevent the meaning of that to become actual skin in the games from, you know, new money and, and other from retail institutions, right? So unless you don't have that, you know, the incentives for demand, uh, the fact that your asset is, is scarce is not enough. It's a huge driver for sure, but in my opinion, it's just not enough. Um, you do need the, the counterpart, you know, price is supply and demand. It's not, it's not just supply, but it's a good meme. If it works, that's perfect because it's, you know, giving insane valuations <laughs> over time. Uh, I have no problem with it. Um, I just don't trade that much around it. I like, well, you shouldn't do that with any model, right? I just like keep track of it maybe once a week. That's about it. I don't want you to spill your special sauce, but I am kind of curious about indicators that you do find tradable, right? That you do actually rely on and, and like. Mm. 
Uh, on chain or in general? I would be I would be curious about both. Like you know, all all and above. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure everyone is curious about your on chain preferences preferences too. Well, uh, depends a lot on what you're doing. Whether you're a, let's say long term or short term active manager slash speculator. Um, if you're long term, just look at you know the, the usuals. Uh, you know the 12 multiples NBRV ratios, um, the Rodel ratio, our huddle ratio, the, the one that Philip Swift created. A bunch of that stuff can give you information of, you know, just having a sense of, oh, okay, are we at the top or not, right? Should I be the profit taking or hedging a little bit here long term or not? Um, and then to maybe have some additional alpha. I'll mention very, uh, very few, very public ones. You can go with, you know, the SOPR created by Renato Shirakashi. That's a very good indicator. There's several versions of it in Glassnode. Um, I'm not sure if in Coinmetrics as well. They have it in Coinmetrics, but just one version. But in any case, um, it's a good way to determine, you know, okay, I'm under the assumption of this is a bull market, let's say. So whenever you go back to one in terms of uh, spent output profit taking, that's a good way to um, detect the bottom, right? Uh, and vice versa. The only thing is that it doesn't give you the absolute top, the generational top, you could say, or the cycle top. It just gives you the dips uh, along the bull market or the tops along the bear market, more or less, for the most part. Um, that's a good one, and I think the most widely used indicator, especially among you know shorter-term traders, is uh, funding rates, and they're the premium. Um, nothing to do with on-chain. It has to do with the, the delta between price uh, and the you know derivative exchange, let's say Bitmix, and spot price. You know the oracle of in Bitmix, you know, the, that weighted average between Coinbase, Bitstamp, and all that stuff. Generally, if you have negative funding rates, it's bullish and positive funding or a premium, it's, um, it's bearish. I do think that a lot of market behavior gets encompassed in that indicator, uh, irrespective of the open interest or the volumes uh, traded. Um, so that, you know, if you have more demand for spot, you know, Bitcoin itself, as opposed to its contracts, uh, it's a very bullish uh, sign, um, you know, so that's, that's when you have, you know, spot under uh, derivative, meaning a discount in spot. So it's cheaper to actually buy the asset than the contract, right, by a slight mar margin. Uh, that just means that, you know, it's more demand on, on spot and it's very healthy, right? And it means that the, the long trade is not overcrowded as well, right? You always want to be on the other uh, side of the, of the crowd in the majority of markets. So for the most part, it's a very useful indicator. It also has to be nuanced in, 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 in how you trade it and assess it, especially in a bull market because you know, the premiums of derivatives go crazy, <laughs> go insane when when price starts pumping. But you could say, you know, either a discount and the perpetual 
contracts or backwardation. Uh, those are very good signs that, you know, underlying demand for spot is, is going well. Uh, what do you expect? Or, I mean, like if we see this, you know, um, super volatile, maybe a blow off top, what do you expect uh, to see with these contango yields? Um, you know, like a couple, maybe a month ago, these, these uh, annualized three month rolling yields are at 35%, some up to 40 and some exchanges um, with, with the recent dip, they're around 25, 20%. Um, what do you expect as, you know, if we see a kind of somewhat of a repeat of 2017 um, and there's, there's a blow off top and volatility really spikes uh, what happens to these yields and what happens as, as all the leverage gets washed out? Oh, that's a good question. Like knowing what, what contango level is actually like a, a top diagnostic. Um, it's hard to get, um, especially because you didn't have such a robust uh, derivative markets at the 2017 top. So there's no history of it. Um, of course, the higher we go in contango, the more bearish the, the whole ecosystem is, right? And the closer we are to to basis or actual backwardation, that, that the more bullish it is. Um, Long-term contango backwardation for Bitcoin, in my experience, it's hard to determine the, the overall primary trend. It's very good to, let's say, catch tops and bottoms when prices, you know, fluctuating like it did in 2018 and 19. But let me give you an example. In 2018, right, we had huge contango and huge uh, premium and the perpetual at the top. The market was not robust. So, you know, you had huge premium. BitMEX was not liquid enough. So you didn't care that much. As soon as, as it started, you know, gaining some equilibrium and robustness in the derivatives market, especially in the offshore platform, um, you had a, a, a sustained period of backwardation uh, all throughout. Every time we touched, let's say, 6K in the first half of 2018, right? Which is the huge descending triangle after the top, right? Before the hash wars and the collapse to 3K. Um, then right at the, at the apex of that triangle, when volatility was extremely low, you have the incentives to sell for miners and the whole hash were like the fundam fundamental event occurred. And that's when premium and contango spiked out of nowhere, right? So given the fact that you had extremely low volatility with very high contango, right? Not even a pump in price, it was very worrisome, right? It means that, you know, um, spot was being unloaded, unloaded severely. And, you know, what happens with low volatility, you know, it trends to high volatility, you know, um, soon, right? So that's exactly what happened. So you, you could make the claim for a bottom all throughout the first half of 2018, because backwardation was extremely healthy meaning that there was demand for spot. But despite the fact that if you have a black or gray swan happening in the market and you know, taking out your, your uh, increasing the yield, but you know, as a 
which in turn has the sign or the significance of the noting spot being sold and the long trade being overcrowded, then, you know, um, contangles a certain uh, sign of, you know, bearishness. I don't know. I, I don't know what have, what levels I can tell you in terms of when is going to be the top. I do know it's the crazier it gets, the, the more bearish I would be and the less sustainable the market structure is. Um, but yeah, it's hard to hard to know. But as symptoms of a market, they're definitely very useful. To give you an, an exact level, where it's like 30, 40%, or, you know, I don't know. If, if you want irrational exuberance, like you can get it in Bitcoin. So uh, if you go to, I, I don't know, 70, 100%, that would be a, perhaps a good, you know. That'd be a good time to sell some futures. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that, that may be a good a good trade in general. I mean, can you kind of give a little bit of a backdrop of like how we even get to that point? Like maybe Dylan, you can give some some color here. Uh, but I I guess um, just like how do we get to this point where someone could just have a risk free yield of a hundred percent by just you know doing this trade? Yeah, well, hundred percent maybe overstating it. <laughs> That's a little bit much. <laughs> whatever, like whatever a crazy number, whatever you think is a, like a top signal number. Like, how do we get there? Like, I feel like people's that's like headline news at that point, right? Like in yeah, all yeah, financial yeah, markets, yeah. like it's just an insane world. Yeah, yeah. Like, how does that happen? Fuck. Well, maybe a better question is like, what breaks? <laughs> what breaks when that happens? Yeah, that's a problem, and at that stage, it becomes a problem of liquidity, right? Uh, for for every contract, because the incentives to market make one side of the trade become quite complicated. Um, but you know, also the incentives of being on the right side of the trade make make sense in the risk reward uh, from a risk reward perspective. But fuck, how do we get there? Well, a lot of it has to do with spot. If spot keeps pumping, there's going to be more interest to the whole long contracts on it. So that's going to drive the demand and exchange the contango in the, in the derivatives. And, uh, you know, it's going to increase the um, uh, call put ratio in options, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I do think it's just, it's, it's spot driven, like derivative um, signs are always relative to what's happening in spot, uh, the oracle of the contract. So one, more adoption, but legitimate adoption, not just like weaker hands coming in, and, which is you know usually related to relational exuberance. And then if you actually want the, the blow off top, um, that comes from, you know, the very laggards of this whole ecosystem coming in, going all in, like the same thing that you would say at the top. Okay, if, if, you, if you're at a stage where you have enough people coming in that if this was the top, they would kill themselves, that's top. Like people going all in into a single asset, shit like that, 
because I, I haven't seen that that much. Or let alone that, going all in into a, a long, a leveraged long or some shit like that, that's for sure at the top, right? Uh, I don't see enough signs of that. I think even the retail that has gotten in uh, are going in, in, in a much risk of fashion for the most part. Like, oh, I just put a few thousand dollars, right? Not all my, my house and assets are on it. So I, I do think getting to those levels, you require a lot of irrational exuberance on spot. And on top of that, on the derivative, um, creating that huge delta between them. And yeah, like, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't want to think about it. It scares me a little. Yeah, well, let, let's focus on, on being bullish. Uh, this is my last question and then we're going to wrap up, but like, what, what's your gut feel right now? We're sitting here, uh, 57K, it's Cinco de Mayo. Um, you know, Cinco we should be drinking mar we should be drinking margaritas, but you know, what's your gut feel on price and are you feeling bullish? And then we can wrap this one up. Uh, let me check. Um, let me, I'm checking the chart. Am I still on screen right now? Yeah, you are on screen. If you want to share the, your screen, you're welcome to. No, I'm just like trying to get like, so far, it looks like we had a very solid bottom of the 48 region or so. You know, we, we tested the middle of the, the midline of the major range between 40 and 60. Uh, SOPR bottom, funding rate bottom. Uh, so you had like spot under derivative for a sustained period. Even you have some periods of that now. Price action is looking decent. Um, I do ex uh, perhaps some, some more consolidation. If we lose, uh, let's say 52 or so, that's not good. Like most likely we'd go and revisit the lower end of that uh, range, which is 45. And if that doesn't hold, perhaps 40. So let, let's just say, Remain bullish. I, I remain bullish in conviction as long we hold as we hold 52, preferably 54, something like that. If we dump below that and doesn't look good and no new bullish signals develop from that, uh, I, I would expect uh, 45 or so at least. That's my, All right. that's my take. Well, David, really appreciate you coming on here, chatting with us on some of these extremely nuanced market subjects and uh, and kind of things that are going down. Where can people uh, continue to follow your work and uh, and find you? Uh, yeah, so I'm at Twitter and Medium, but you know, mostly in Twitter uh, at Keno Kenosha King or Kenosha King. Like I, I've gotten both sides, but Kenosha. King, which is a pun, a play on words on Kenosha Kid from Thomas Pynchon. That's that's the origin of my handle. But Kenosha King at Twitter, on Medium as well. Uh, I publish some stuff from time to time. I recently published a collaboration with Ark Invest and Jacin, you know, the head crypto analyst from there. Uh, we're coming up with part three. Uh, as an introduction of on-chain metrics, is a very good primer. Um, so check out parts one and two, and perhaps in a few weeks, part three. Uh, and, and that's about it. Anything, you know, I'll, I'll just post it on Twitter. 
Amazing. Yeah. Well, we'll add that both, both parts in the show notes. Uh, I greatly respect Yasin as well. And, uh, I've heard great things about both series, but man, I just got so much content. I'm just always trying to consume. So it's, uh, I definitely need to make Sam to, to jump in as well. Um, Dylan, thank you so much for joining as well and bringing such great questions. Where can people find you? Yeah, you can just find me on Twitter. Um, uh, BTC ization, Bitcoinization, uh, just do some work for Bitcoin magazine. So yeah, you can find me. Ask Paul, you now, brother. Yeah. <laughs> do, yeah. If I don't follow you already, I'll, I'm gonna after after the show. All right. Hey, well, yeah, to the Bitcoin. Appreciate your time. Yeah, pleasure. Great interview. Thank you. To the Bitcoiners listening, do uh, as David is doing. Go and follow um, my man, Dylan. Go follow Kenosha King. Uh, I've been having a great time following him for the last three or so years and uh, always a pleasure interviewing you. Uh, and so thank you again for coming on, David. Uh, again, Bitcoiners, follow us at Bitcoin Magazine. Follow me at CK underscore Snarks and give us those five-star reviews. Give us those shares. It means a lot. And uh, we're obviously sh- spreading high quality information i mean like come on this conversation is absolutely incredible yeah i i've been loving the content uh, out of bitcoin magazine by the way great job appreciate it that means i saw a lot. you published with glassnow recently actually right like uh, uh yeah. basics on mountain analytics as well let's get getting yeah into the we're, we're all about the collabs we're all about the collabs right. so hey when, uh, whenever it's time for a David Puel uh, on Bitcoin Magazine, we're uh, we're all ears and excited for that. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. All right, cool. All right, well, hey, that's how that's how the sausage is made, guys. That's how we make the collaborations happen. They're in real time. All right, we'll catch you later. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.